Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Denise Visco, who's medical director and founder of the Eyes of York. She's well known for her outstanding work in the field. She's one of the first to use a few amazing devices, and she's been recognized as the ophthalmologist's top 100 female influencers. She's been heavily involved in both ACEs and the Aspens Group, serving as the most recent Cedars Aspens president. She's been an advocate and a mentor for female surgeons everywhere, helping to break down barriers and pave the way. Well, Denise, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk to you about your journey in the field. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in ophthalmology? My start in ophthalmology was actually a very slow path. Lots of people that I've spoken to, they they had a very strong idea that they wanted to go into ophthalmology, but that's not how I decided. My husband jokes sometimes that I'm a box checker. So when I look at something, I ha- it has to check all the boxes for me. I'm very goal-oriented. I'm very driven. And I have to be going along and checking boxes and getting things done. And so when I was in medical school and going through my rotations at my second and third year, I was checking boxes. Surgery, yes. OBGYN, maybe. Family medicine, not so much. So I was checking the boxes as I went along and I was looking at the things that I liked to do. I liked being outpatient better than I liked being in the hospital. I loved surgery. I liked being able to have time to talk to patients. And I liked things that were very high tech, but also not bloody. And not that I get faint at the sight of blood or anything like that. I'm usually the one that has to go in and wrap things up. And, you know, with having three boys, I've seen a lot of really horrible injuries, but I didn't want to do it for a living. And so when I went through all of those things that were outpatient and surgical and high tech and clean and detailed, ophthalmology was the natural choice. And many of my friends in medical school how could you just decide that? You know, I'm at the end of the third year, beginning of fourth year. I said, well, I said, I have to try it. I think I'm going to love it. And so I did some rotations and then that sealed the deal. It wasn't that I wore glasses from the time I was, you know, two or somebody in my family had an eye problem. It's just how I decided. And that's kind of how I decide a lot of things <laughs> in life. <laughs> Did you know from the beginning which field, I mean, did you know you wanted to do cataract and refractive or did you think about retina, glaucoma? I absolutely loved cataract surgery. And we had a very strong retina program at Hershey Medical Center. We had George Blankenship was our chairman and we had fluorescein angiogram conference weekly. We were given mystery photos and angiograms and we had to come up with a diagnosis and present our our retina case. And it was great. I loved retina and I loved 
cornea. And I also loved cataract, but I loved cataract surgery the most. I really did. And that was an easy, easy decision for me. The one thing that I didn't like is having something on my head. So the indirect, even though I still do an indirect ophthalmoscopy on my patients when they're coming for cataract surgery, I didn't want to have to do a living with an indirect on my head. So, you know, things like that, again, checking boxes as I went through, but it was pretty easy. And the hard thing for me was deciding to open my own practice. So although I knew I wanted to be a general ophthalmologist that focused in cataract surgery very quickly into my residency, I didn't want to open my own practice. I really worked hard to try to find a practice to join. But when I graduated, the opportunities were not very strong, especially for women. When I came back to speak with my co-residents that were also interviewing, they actually interviewed at some of the same practices that I went to. And I was being offered $25,000 less than them for the job, for the same exact job that they interviewed for. So I, it kind of pissed me off. So I thought, well, I'm just going to open my own practice. And because if they could do what I could do it, you know, <laughs> it's just some of that is youth, you know, isn't it great sometimes when we're young? I think of the things I did when I was young and I would never do them now, but I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't do those things, you know. Thinking about your educational journey, was there anyone in particular who helped guide you on that kind of, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself mentality? Not for going into private practice. I had wonderful mentors at Hershey. Dr. George Rosenwasser taught me a lot about cataract surgery, as did Dr. Sasani and Dr. Amalari. They were really very good teachers. I learned lots from Tom Gardner and George Blankenship about retina. They were all kind to me, and I really appreciated the attention that all the residents got. But as far as going into private practice, they really didn't know much about going into private practice. One of my co-residents also when it was going into private practice, they had a primer. It was a binder. It was a primer on how to go into private practice. And I just followed the instructions. I wish I kept it. And I, I've looked for it and I actually can't find it. That's a very valuable binder. I don't, I haven't actually heard of many people being provided something like that before. My uh, Rich Marshner was a resident who graduated with me that also went into private practice. And he and I were, would exchange notes and how many offices do you plan or how many exam lanes. So I didn't buy someone else's practice. I just rented some space and built it out and did it. But I had help all along the way. So although I didn't have someone who I would consider a mentor that was showed me how to do it, I searched for people that knew what they were doing and how to do it. I used a consultant, Tom Tricoli. He was my guy that got me the rental space, got me the phone system, said, Denise, go look at these five desks, decide which one you want. I used uh, Southern Optical and they helped me with equipment and deciding what equipment to get. So it was a matter of going through that binder and getting what I needed. But the biggest thing I needed was a loan from the bank. And I had no collateral. 
All I had was debt. <laughs> I had zero dollars in the bank. I did have a husband that worked and made a good living, but I also had two kids and I was fortunate enough to get referred to an accountant that had a nice relationship with a bank because 30 some years ago, that was important. That would actually hold some weight. And I made a business plan about where I was going to put the office. I actually looked at who the other ophthalmologists were in the community and because they wanted to make sure the area wasn't overserved and that you were in a competitive region and all of that. And I remember going in and pitching it to the bank for the loan and having my chart behind me with little pins where all the other ophthalmologists were on the map <laughs> and where I was going to be, which was not near them. <laughs> and I got a loan for about $350,000 at nine and a half percent. And it took me about three and a half years to pay it off. Three and a half years. Wow. Yeah. That's not bad. I mean, 30 years ago, it's a lot of money. You think about 3% inflation year over year. I mean, that's uh, it's a lot the of money. The first year in practice, I made negative $14,000. So I worked all year. Now, granted, I only did five or six surgeries the first month in practice, but I worked all year and I lost $14,000. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly I didn't do as well as I would have if I went to work for someone. But I kind of outpaced that, I think, by about the fourth year. So my fourth year in practice, I was making much more than I would have received with any of the offers, even considering raises. But I worked. I worked 60-hour weeks. I worked some Saturdays. I worked Tuesday nights. I did not have another ophthalmologist to take call for me, so I had to work out an arrangement with someone in the community if I wanted to go on vacation or go visit my parents for the weekend, or if there was a soccer tournament that I couldn't be paged during that I didn't want to, that I wanted to spend with my kids. So it was not easy, but it was definitely worth it. And after about 10 years, I was doing very, very well. I was doing lots of cataract surgery. I also did LASIK. I trained myself on LASIK shortly after I graduated the residency program. I went to a K-Spear course on RK, and uh, I know I still have my book, my Chiron book somewhere. And I did a few RK, fortunately not a lot. And then I also got into LVC in 1998 when the FDA approved LASIK. So I didn't do it at first when PRK was approved, but once they approved LASIK, then I decided to do that. So I actually went and visited Ralph Berkeley in Texas, who was doing a large number of LASIK procedures, and he was kind enough to let me visit him and watch him do some procedures. And Back then, we had no approval for hyperopia, and you had to get creative if you wanted to treat hyperopia, and 
I saw Ralph do a hyperopic case, which was really, really interesting. You know, the little weights that you would put on a scale in a lab, like a chemistry lab, you'd have a scale and you'd have the little, you know, one gram, two gram, three gram. Well, he had those weights. As you know, for a hyperopic ablation, it it ablates more in the periphery and less centrally to create a steepening in the cornea. And that's what he did with the weights. He put a weight on the cornea that had a, a large disc and then did a little bit of laser and then made it smaller and smaller, but he had a, a system with it and he got good results. And And I'm watching him do this and I'm thinking, you know, this really is the wild, wild west, isn't it? Refractive surgery. This is cool stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> I actually wound up getting a NIDEC laser and, and opening my own laser vision suite in the year 2000. So about two years after I was doing procedures at the Clear Vision Laser Center, I decided to get my own stuff. And I had a Moria, I think it was in an M2 or an M1, I can't even remember now. And so that's what I rolled with. And I got a loan for about close to a half a million dollars for that. And it scared the bejesus out of me. But I was rolling just immediately as soon as I got that equipment, we were doing, you know, 50, 60 cases or certain, you know, patients a month for a good while. And patients were having great results. The first topographer back then was an atlas and it had four color images on it, two for each eye. <laughs> and we had a pachymeter so it was a good time. It's interesting to think that you spent $500,000 on a new laser, but $350,000 to open the whole practice. That's right. <laughs> That's remarkable. Yeah, with, with three lanes of equipment. So it was 480 something, I think is, is about what it was. And that included the keratome. And then I also had to build a laser vision correction suite, which was not included in the four... 60 or 70 or whatever it was. And that cost me $39,000. And I paid for it, just paid for it, okay, which was a mistake. Because when you make a, an improvement to a building, even if you're renting it, you have to write that off over 35 years. So then I had to pay taxes. On that. But these are the kind of mistakes I made. And they were so aggravating, because you would think you're doing something correctly or doing something well. And then you just dug yourself into a hole. And especially financially, it was very stressful being the only one in practice and having to go so far into debt and do that. But again, because I was young, I had the energy to dig myself out and, and just keep digging and digging and hopefully come through and, and be on the surface at some point. And we all know it was a happy ending. So it was I'm trying to think it was the year 2000. So six years later, after I had the laser vision correction suite and everything was going well with that, my lease was up. I had been in the building for 10 years and I was looking at building my own building for practice. So I was looking at land and I was looking at building a structure. And then the question came up, should I build a surgical center for cataract surgery? And I was really working a lot of hours. I was really missing my family. 
my kids. I was missing a lot of what they was going on with them growing up. I have three sons, by the way. The third I had about a year and a half into opening my practice. He was born. He was born in 1998, right after I started doing LASIK. I went to the Dominican Republic to do some LASIK cases, and I was seven and a half months pregnant when I went there. And everyone was very upset because <laughs> they didn't want to have me, my, you know, me on their hands, be responsible for me. But he was born in December of that year. And I took off two weeks and then came back part-time. And then two weeks after that, I was back full-time. Full disclosure, it's my practice and my office. So the baby was at the office a lot. <laughs> so, you know, so I didn't miss him too much. But after I started to get very busy with the laser vision correction and the cataract surgery simultaneously, I was really burning the candle at both ends and trying to be a mom at the same time. And so that's when I decided to get a partner, especially if I was going to build a building. I couldn't handle all of that just on my shoulders. If I break a leg or a finger, it's all on me. And then the loans from the bank really got big because that's what we did. So, and that's where I am. I'm in my office right now in the building that we own that has an ambulatory surgery center, laser vision correction suite, and 14 exam lanes, et cetera. I have my partner that's still with me that came with me back in um, 2006. And he has been my partner for a long time. Really, really great person, Jerry Benz. And then we also have a new associate, Sam LaCrosse here, who is a great cataract surgeon. And so I'm really very fortunate that it's not all on my shoulders anymore. And that was a tremendous help to me when Jerry joined our practice. We wound up getting upgrades to our laser vision correction stuff in right when we moved here in around 2007. And I bought a femtosecond laser right before the LVC market crashed in uh, 2009. <laughs> so my timing really was bad for that. But we still provide that service here for patients and we do smile as well. I'm kind of uh, addicted to technology and I'm very grateful that my partner that came on with me shared that love for technology as well. But when I got into refractive cataract surgery was probably 2011 or 2012 when I decided to buy a Lensar laser and do femtosecond laser cataract surgery. I'm glad you brought that up because th there's an important historical point here, right? You were the <laughs> first female surgeon to use the Linzar. Yes. So the joke is that and $5 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> but when Linzar was first bringing their product to the United States, before it was approved, they were looking to see who would be interested in purchasing it. So I put a deposit down on the device before even, even seeing it. And when the device was close to being approved, they offered to the physicians that had deposits down on the device that they could travel to Peru. So it was Lima, Peru. So we could travel there and they had the device set up in a clinic and that we could come there 
and perform cases with the laser. So I was in 100%. The travel expenses, of course, were a little bit of a burden, but I knew I was going to be getting this laser. And, you know, my husband was saying, well, if you're going to be getting it and you're going to be using it at the office, what do you have to go there and use it for ahead of time? <laughs> but I did. So and it was 23 hour trip. So I, we flew in and we flew out in, in 23 hours. But when I got to do my cases there, I was noticing that when the other surgeons did their cases, they would do the laser. Everyone would be gathered around when the laser was being performed. It was fascinating. We hadn't seen this type of device before. It was very different than the LensX that was already on the market. And then the patient would go to the operating room and the surgeon would quietly go in there and finish the cataract surgery. But when it came time for me to do my cases and go in and finish the cataract surgery, about 25 people followed me in the room and stood around in a circle to watch me finish the cataract surgery. And I was, I was like thinking, my, what in the world is happening here? And after the case was done, I'm not sure if it was the first or second case, it was Frank Bucci's clinic that we were being hosted by. And I asked Frank, I said, Frank, I said, how many women have you had here do surgery? And he just, I could see him smiling underneath his mask and he, and he put up a single finger. <laughs> <laughs> they actually applauded when I finished as if it was a, such an amazing feat for a woman to do a cataract surgery. <laughs> I'm just joking. I absolutely appreciated the hospitality and the support that they gave me. Well, we all know you're a phenomenal surgeon. I'm sure it was a surgery <laughs> worth clapping for. So, But it was very sweet and I appreciated it. And it was a great experience that I was able to participate in. I want to go back and talk a little bit more about some of your early LASIK experience. You know, it's one thing to join a practice that's already doing LASIK and to kind of have that, in a way, a safety net. But it's a little different to go out. And like you said, you went and learned LASIK and then you took the leap and did it. And it is a leap. For those of you who are listening that don't do LASIK, it is a leap because we go from being cataract surgeons and curing a disease to now taking otherwise healthy eyes and operating on them. And it's very different then than it is now. Now, the outcomes were still phenomenal, but there's still that initial almost fear. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you kind of overcame that and, and what your first couple cases were like on your own? Because again, it just shows how confident and much of a trailblazer you are too. Well, I appreciate that. Honestly, some of it is hard to remember. It is a bit of a blur, but what I do remember that back when I was looking to do refractive surgery, the laser vision correction, it's something that I was very passionate about and that I wanted to do. So I did do a lot of wet labs. They were pig eyes and it was with, I did it with a Hansatome and I did it with an ACS. And I went to several courses before I considered performing the procedures. And I started with the RK in 1996. So it was a bit late, you know, for RK. And so that's why I didn't do too many of them. And leading up to LASIK getting approved, I think I did at least three courses and did the wet labs. And then Clear Vision Laser Center also had 
multiple wet labs that you could come and practice on pig eyes when you wanted because they wanted you to be successful. You were using their center. Visiting other surgeons was very important also because I did not have someone in my backyard or in my practice that I could just go and see how it was done. The other thing that, at least for me, that made it easier to jump into is that everybody was new. There were not seasoned LASIK surgeons around when I decided to do laser vision correction. We were the ones doing it. So there was nobody down the road that had any more experience than I did. So the other thing is that the technology available was very limited. That's why I made the joke about the topographer. That's all the information you got. How much of a mistake can you make? You know, we, there isn't much to miss. There's only four images there. <laughs> so the simplicity of the technology at the time also made it less intimidating. But the key to my being able to do it so confidently was going outside of the country to the Dominican Republic. One of my mentors, Rafa Feliz, was doing LASIK down there with an ACS. I think it was a, a Vizix laser that he had at the time. And I went down there and I wasn't just coming to do a bunch of cases and go home. I actually stayed for almost a week because I wanted to see the pre-ops and the post-ops and to see the patients. And then I had a handful of cases that he actually allowed me to do. And I will tell you that my very first case with the ACS, I got a free cap. The very first one I ever did, free cap. And I looked and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> where is it? <laughs> and Rafa was absolutely, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. He said, don't worry. And he very skillfully took the instrument apart and extracted the corneal cap perfectly. It was marked so we knew exactly how it needed to go down. We treated the patient. We put it back. It sealed. We put a contact lip. He was perfect the next day. It was absolutely perfect. And so when that happened to me in my own practice a year or so later, my whole staff, deer in the headlights, <laughs> I said, and I just calmly took the instrument. And that's another thing. Always know your instruments. Always know how to take them apart and put them together. When you were using those uh, hands of tomes and the Marias, you better believe that I could take that thing apart, put it together myself, because that is the only way you get a cap out of there without mangling it. Can you tell us a little bit more about the microkeratome? Because prior to being able to cut a flap using femtosecond laser, we had microkeratomes. And can you tell us a little bit about them and, and maybe some of the complications that, that people saw with those? You know, the microkeratome was simultaneously an elegant and barbaric device. It had a suction ring that you put down onto the patient and the suction ring fell around the limbus so that you exposed as much of the cornea as possible. And then essentially you would click on a second piece to the system, which had a blade that would glide across the surface of the cornea at a specific depth and plane it to make a flap. If the cornea was flat, you had a high risk of getting a cap because the 
blade would go a defined distance and then come back. And the defined distance was supposed to leave you with a hinge for that flap. Another downside of using a microkeratome was, of course, epithelial ingrowth was more common because the side cut was not like you can do with a femtosecond laser where you make it kind of like a manhole. So it's just glides in on an angle the way a blade would cut. So the epithelium could more easily grow in under that flap. So if you lifted that flap for an enhancement, uh, you were much more likely to get epithelial ingrowth. It was also very stressful for patients. They, their vision would black out. It would hurt. Sometimes they would yell and we'd have to tell them to hold still. And then when you when the microkeratome would rotate or go across the cornea, it would make a loud machine kind of sound, which also stress patients out a lot, but it was a means to an end and, and patients had very good care with that. I have lots of patients that come in and they've had blade flaps and now they're having cataract surgery and they've had many, many years of good vision. And you'd mentioned the Vizex laser. I think initially there were a couple different companies and I, I don't know the histories of all of them. That eventually we're going to do a LASIK specific episode and we're going to talk solely about that. And we're obviously going to have Marguerite McDonald on the show at some point as well to talk about her experiences. But I know, so Vizex was initially a company formed by Charles Munnerlin, I think, which was obviously one of the, the founders of or uh, discoverers of, of the eczema laser. And then I think it was bought by AMO and then Johnson & Johnson bought AMO. So now kind of ran by by Johnson & Johnson Vision. But obviously other companies have uh, their own stories as well. Okay, so you started with LASIK and then you got Femto. So and you kind of alluded to them earlier, but what was one of the biggest things that you noticed in transitioning from the microkeratome to the Femto second laser? Well, we had an IFS for our first Femto second laser. It was... The similarity in the cone and the suction was a benefit. So we were used to putting a suction ring on for the microkeratome. So we put the suction ring on for the, the uh, femtosecond laser. Then you had to dock into the ring. And that wasn't that difficult, actually. It wasn't much of a transition. The one thing I do remember is when I did my very first flap on the cornea and the bubbles went across the cornea and the whole surface of the cornea was white. I remember my heart skipping a beat because it just, I found it so upsetting to see a white cornea. You know, I just had this flash of Denise, what are you doing? And then I looked, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and then it was fine. I was able to, the difference in, however, is in picking up the flap because a blade flap just comes right up as you would expect once you, when you're getting ready to do the laser portion of the procedure. Hmm. But with a femtosecond cut, you have to connect the bubbles. You have to break through the bubbles. So you needed a special instrument and needed to go through and. Actually, I don't recall that I did anything other than, hey, we're doing femtosecond flaps today. We just jumped right into it. We did some, of course, the wet lab with the pig eyes and lifted it, but we did it at the practice. So I didn't travel anywhere and I didn't visit anyone or anything. We just, we just did it. 
And of course, the white layer you're referring to is that OBL, right? That opaque bubble layer that we see. And then you got to connect the bubbles and then it all disappears and it looks good. But it is very concerning the first time you ever see it. You know, I think one of the biggest advantages of switching to Femto is how many free caps have you had with Femto? Zero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's it. And, and we know that because it is doing those those side cuts that it's more like a manhole as opposed to just a blade. You know, we are seeing less ingrowth and some other things, but we are seeing, we did see more DLK because of the laser energy. So was that a transition, like knowing to look for that and seeing this uptick of inflammation in some of these patients? Because that was kind of a, a hot topic for a while. It was. And we actually had some issues at the end of life of the femtosecond laser before we got the Visumax, where we were getting a good bit of DLK because even though everything was checking off and checking out on the laser, I just felt that it was time to get a new one. And once we did, we stopped having those issues. And we got the Visumax because we needed a new femtosecond laser. And I thought, well, why don't we get the one that we can do smile with? So that's how we we wound up breaking into that. So you're the first person to mention smile, really. And, and I think one of the first that's actually performing smile on the show. Do you want to talk a little bit about smile just so those who may not know about it can learn a little bit? Smile is just a super fun procedure to do and patients get phenomenal results with it. They love the idea of not having a flap It's just a no-worry procedure. It's not as easy to do as LASIK, and it's definitely not as easy to do as PRK, but it definitely requires surgical technique and paying attention to a lot of different things while you're doing it, but it's very rewarding. I enjoy it, and I do think that the patients have less enhancements. I think that the data shows they have less uh, higher-order aberrations after surgery, and I think their results are just as good as the LASIK results that they get. When did you convert to doing more smile cases? I'm trying to think how long we've had our laser. We got it 2018. Relatively early because what I can't remember exactly what year Zeiss came out with the Visumax. It was the year it was approved we got it. I mean, we had it before Smile was approved. And then when Smile was approved, they just turned, you know, turned the key and we got the software. And for those listening, I know we use a lot of, obviously, it's, this is an ophthalmology podcast. We have an acronym for everything. So SMILE is small incision lenticular extraction. It's you know basically using the femtosecond laser to instead cut a flap on the surface, but to create a small lens or lenticule within the cornea, and then using a couple small incisions to then pull it out. So really cool kind of, uh, I mean, you've really done the full gamut of refractive surgery. <laughs> I do love refractive surgery. The first thing that I love about refractive surgery is how it has evolved since that atlas topographer with the four pictures on it. I have a penicam that has more color images on it than I can possibly count. I have a Cassini. I have an OPD. I also have the Zeiss topographer from my IOL master. So we look at all of that when we plan our treatments. The most of what I actually do right now is refractive cataract surgery. So even though I've done all the laser vision correction, when we transitioned to do to offering all patients refractive cataract surgery when they came in for their cataract surgery consultation, that was right around 2011 and 2012. And we have had a really wonderful acceptance of it in our community. Patients understand and know what the laser is. 
they understand the benefit of it. Sometimes they get a little confused. The laser's better, right? The laser's safer, right? And we have some conflicting published data on both sides of the fence. And I try to stress to patients that the laser is a refractive tool. It's to get a result that makes you less dependent on glasses or contact lenses. And if you want to do that with your cataract surgery, then that is what we're offering. And that has, like I said, very rewarding. In talking to patients, what do you want to do with your vision? Where do you need to see? Do you drive at night? What are your hobbies? And what are the things that you want to do and not wear glasses for? If they don't mind wearing glasses for this or that, but this is what they particularly do not want to wear glasses for. Then we have so many products that have come out that have been successful in enhancing patients' quality of life and enabling them to be without glasses for many, many things that they enjoy. And we've had IOLs evolve. We've had multifocal. We've had monofocal. We've had accommodating. We have the pinhole lens now. We have the light adjustable lens now. So with all of that, what was the first premium IOL or advanced technology IOL, if you will, that you implanted? The array lens. <laughs> the array. Okay. One of the, the original, right? That's a, so the array was a zonal, zonal refractor, yes. right? Wow. So you were that because that's from I the beginning. I am a dinosaur, baby. <laughs> I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Did you play with the crystal lens and all the I other? I did. I put the crystal lens. I um, also put in most of the multifocals that I can think of offhand. Symphony, Panoptics, Restore, AccuFocus. I think the only lens that I am not implanting or have not implanted is the light adjustable lens. We mentioned some of your mentors during, you know, the early years of residency and medical school. Do you have a couple of mentors that just lifelong mentors that you've always looked up to that have helped uh, really guide just anything in general about what you've done with your career, be it personal or professional? You know, I have my girlfriends, you know, I have my Aspen's girlfriends, you know, that's really who I look to now for my emotional support, for my professional support. And that is such a gift to me. And I am so grateful for it. A lot of the women that you mentioned, Dee Stevenson, Marguerite McDonald, Kathleen McCabe, they're all mentors, they're friends. Cynthia Matosian, Maria Scott, Lisa Fulner, all of these women that have you know, they have been to my house for dinner. I've been to their practice and they've been to my practice. The friends and colleagues that we make as we plow through our career and our lives, we collect them, right, as we go along. And they all have tremendous influence. And so those would be a few of the names. And I know I'm, I'm forgetting many. So I apologize to my friends that I have not mentioned. So <laughs> <laughs> okay. you said friends, all my friends in ophthalmology, that, that covered them. You brought up Aspen's, and I think that's an important organization to mention. So because you're highly involved, have been involved since the beginning of Aspen's, and then obviously Cedars and Aspen's joined. And now you're the president of the entire society. Again, it is an honor to serve the group. And we had a lot of work that went into forming Aspen's. The idea was there for a lot of us. We wanted a women's group that was professional, that was different, 
because I know we have women in ophthalmology and we have OWL and so what's another women's group and you know we had those conversations too but this this was different this was supposed to be women that were were friends that were all anterior segment type surgeons that either you know cornea cataract glaucoma that type of thing and we wanted to be able to talk about personal and professional things in a confidential group but we also as a group in Aspen's liked teaching. And so we like to go to meetings and give lectures. We like to learn from each other and then take that knowledge and give it to other people, share it with other people. And so we have very close relationships with industry because we're always looking for new innovative products and and procedures and, and devices. So in discovering those things, we also want to take that knowledge and share it. We're active at meetings. We present papers. We also volunteer at meetings to give presentations. And we found that the Cedars group shared our values. And that's primarily why we decided you know, to become one group. It was definitely a journey. I'm very proud to be one of the founding members of, of Aspen's and then, and also to be, have been present when we joined together and to go to their meetings. And I served for many years on their board and worked my way to be president this year. And we have lots of good things that we've done for our membership and and looking forward to continuing to be part of the organization and be very active. Looking back, is there one innovation, one device, one procedure, one thing that you feel really defined your career in ophthalmology? That impacted my career, I would have to say the Lensar laser. So you feel like femtosecond cataract surgery just really unlocked it for you and your patients? It did because the device is a tool to deliver refractive results has been absolutely terrific. I mean, I'm finding words difficult right now to describe where I, the types of results I was getting before I got their laser and then the results I'm able to get now. We also have better topographers, better ways of measuring astigmatism now, better equations for IOL calculations. So all of those things have evolved at the same time. So that has also helped. But when the laser was able to do an iris registration maneuver and then make capsular marks where your torque IOL should be aligned. So if I want an IOL on 88 degrees or 7 degrees or 9 degrees, you better believe it's going to be exactly on 9 degrees. When I use that laser, that does an iris registration maneuver coupled with my Cassini topographer, which I also, you know, I do consult for Cassini. I consult for Lenzar, but I consult for them because I love their stuff. <laughs> you know, and to get a result, I mean, 20, 99% of patients, less than half a diopter of cylinder. And it's not, and I almost don't even feel like it's me doing it. I almost feel bad taking credit for it because the device did the registration, 
The device did the measurement. There it is. All I did was execute it. So I'm just so happy to be able to do that for patients. And that I think has been the biggest, because most, again, we all do LVC. LVC is not what it used to be back in the day, right? We don't do 60 patients. Some places may, but you know, I'm not doing 60 patients a, a month, right? So I'm doing mostly cataract surgery and refractive cataract surgery. And it's just, it's so much fun. It makes it so much fun to be able to do that with your with your cataracts. And I love that you said fem the femtosecond laser for cataract surgery because it's amazing. You know, I've asked that same question to other people and I've gotten a different answer from everyone, which I love. I love that no one is just like, oh, it's this. Oh, it's this. It's like, no, it's, you know, I've heard, I've gotten the OCT, ICL, you know, trifocal IOLs to, I mean, it's amazing the breadth and what people have really found, you know, impactful in their careers. And I, I love that. I love that we have so many toys in our field. And again, it's not any femtosecond laser. It has to be one that can be used as a refractive tool because you don't need a femtosecond laser to do cataract surgery. You don't need it to do a safe cataract surgery. You don't need it to do an effective cataract surgery. If you do, you should stop using the femtosecond laser and start doing it without it so that you can act to, you know, hone your skills at cataract surgery. Femtosecond laser in my opinion, my personal opinion is not something that's needed for cataract surgery. But in my opinion, if I'm doing a refractive cataract surgery, I need my Lensar laser. Uh, that makes me confident and happy in what I'm doing. Do you have any advice for female surgeons looking to get more involved or even just looking to get started in medicine. I know the field or the landscape has changed and has become more positive for, for women over the years, but obviously there's still some roadblocks along the way. Do you have any advice for those surgeons who are, who are looking to kind of follow in your footsteps? When I think about myself and how I was able to become more involved and have more opportunities, really what you're looking for is you're looking for opportunities. You have to get out of your office. You have to get out of your operating room and you have to meet other ophthalmologists. You have to meet other people in industry. You have to go to a meeting. You have to go around and you have to speak with the people that are that have devices and products on the floor and look at them and, and evaluate them. They're happy to meet with you. They're interested in your opinion. They want to know, do you think this, how does this handle look? It's too big and bulky. When I try to use it, it smashes into me. It's not, not going to work. And you should redesign it. Okay. There's a lot of unsolicited advice that I have given different companies about their products. And when it's helpful advice, then they want to hear more from you. So re getting actually in touch with industry is and not being afraid to do it is one thing because you're physician you have clout to people that are making products for you they want to hear your your opinion about it you might think that they don't but they do so that that's the one thing second thing is make friends with other ophthalmologists who are doing things that you like to do and if no one in your general area where you practice wants to do that because they're afraid of competition, then you have to go outside that area. 
And that's really when things started clicking for me. I would go to meetings. I would try put, submit to give a talk because of something that I learned or something that I thought, and I had talks rejected. We don't need you, Denise. We don't want to hear about this. I mean, I was on, I went to the ACEs meeting. I think I've been, I've only missed one meeting in 30 years. And I served on the board and I would submit talks and they would say, no, 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 no. And I just kept at it, kept submitting. Well, maybe this year someone will want to hear about this. Maybe this year someone will want to hear about this. And eventually, you know, I got the opportunity to speak on the podium. My first podium speech was a disaster. I got one and two star reviews. I had more ands and ums and ifs and buts and thus in the middle of what I was trying to say than I could count myself. But I still got back up and did it. So grit is very important for anything in life. But in particular, with your career, if you want certain things out of your career, then you have to have grit. You have to be tenacious. You have to go after it. And hopefully you're still young enough to have the energy. <laughs> I have to selfishly ask this question because part of the reason I started this podcast, the, the whole impetus behind it was found some old videos of Ralph Berkeley, obviously our founder, when he was 92 years old. And they weren't necessarily the questions I would have asked if I were sitting down with Ralph. And so I really felt like I missed an opportunity to sit down and record because he was just a phenomenal man and surgeon and, and to me a mentor. I met Ralph when I visited his practice because I had a connection with ACEs. I was the runner-up in their resident video competition as a senior ophthalmology resident. I submitted a video, and I believe Lance Ferguson was one of the judges, who I did not know him at the time, but I know him now. And I went to the ACEs meeting to receive my award. And at that meeting, everyone was so welcoming and so friendly, and I was shaking hands and rubbing elbows with these high volume cataract surgeons that were so kind and willing to share all kinds of information with me. And they were shocked. You just opened a practice. Yes, I just, I'm getting ready to open a practice. I didn't just open it. I'm in the, and the, well, let us know how it's going. And do you need this? And so they were all really very, very nice. Two ophthalmologists in particular, Ralph Berkeley and Gail Martin were very interested in my experience. And Ralph told me if I wanted to come out and watch some LASIK surgery, to come out and watch some LASIK surgery. So after I got on my feet, it was about a year in, then I was pregnant and then I had to wait a little longer. I went and uh, visited Ralph at his practice and did the LASIK. And one of the things that I do remember when he was doing the scale weights for the hyperopic treatment. I looked around the room and there was a big red fire button on the wall. And I asked him what that big button was for. And he told me that, and he, he made a joke. I think it was just a fire alarm. He made a joke and he said, well, if the FDA comes, the alarm's going to go off. <laughs> but uh, he was such a great teacher 
and but he also had a great sense of humor. He saw so many patients that day for cataract surgery as well, which I also followed him that day. And he must have done, in the span of a day, about 30 patients for LASIK and then another 35 some patients for cataract surgery. It was a double day. And every time he finished with any of his patients, he touched their head in a very caring manner and said a few words about their surgery. Everything was fine. It was very reassuring. Your procedure's finished. Everything went perfectly, etc. And at the end of the day, he took me aside and mentioned that. And he said, Denise, if you're going to be a high volume surgeon, you have to learn how to connect with your patients because high volume surgeons don't have a lot of time to spend. So make sure it's quality time when you are spending it. And I actually do that. I do exactly that. I was invited to be on the ACES board by Ralph and Gail. And about two or three years into practice, I joined the board of ACES, and I am still a member on the board. I've also served as president of ACES. And every meeting, I would always spend time with Ralph, and we would sit down, and we have a cocktail together. And then as he got older, I had a cocktail, and he had a non-alcoholic beverage. <laughs> and he would ask me how things were going. He was, it was just so nice. It was, I felt that it was a real personal touch and he was kind of like a father figure in some sense. I mean, I, I love that story because a lot of those same things that, that he said to you, he said to me when I was, and I've known him since I was, I don't know, eight years old. And so it's so nice to hear some of the same things that he said to me that, you know, that he said to other people too. So that's really cool to hear. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Denise, Thank you so much for joining. I mean, seriously, this has been great. I've learned so much. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for all you've done for our field and for ophthalmology. Thank you, Morgan. I, I appreciate the invitation. And it was nice to spend the evening chatting. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the History of Eye Care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.